So, good to see you here. Good to see you here. Um, let me see. Junior high, you have a class to go to. I'm not sure who's teaching. Mr. Domke is. He's standing back there. Junior high, you have a class to go to, and you can send your connection cards down that way, and our ushers will pick them up for you. So, um, let me see. There's a few things to just touch on real quick, as usual, before we get started here. Um, it is really exciting to see 40 of us downtown today at the uh, Kensington Christmas. And then yesterday we had the Hanukkah celebration at the uh, Beers home, and that went really, really well. It went really well. Puppets did a good job. Uh, the Hanukkah story was good. I mean, just everything about it was really good. It worked really well to be in their home. I hope they feel the same. <laughs> so um, anyway, that's, that's an answered prayer. We're still waiting to see what God would do in the long term about that. We might not know in this life, but we'll wait and see. So... Um, just want to mention to you really quickly that this Thursday, or this Wednesday, you know, is our annual Christmas Eve service. And so, uh, Thanksgiving Eve service. Thanksgiving is this, this holiday coming up with Turkey. Well, yeah, this one. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. We'll, we are here. It's a small crowd. We do it more kind of like down here on the floor all together. And I would encourage you that like um, we, I've been stressing to you some opportunities for family discipleship, you know, doing some of these things together as a family. This is a great way to come together as family worship as well. And so I'd encourage you that like, you know, to bring your kids and it'll be louder than usual and a little bit more distracting than usual, but we'll do it. We'll be distracted as a family. All right. So bring them. Thursday night, we'll be meeting here for the service, all right? Right now, the ushers will begin to do a handout. We're going to be using it for, say again? Did I say something wrong again? This Wednesday, we're celebrating Thanksgiving, which happens the day after, which is a month before Christmas, which is later on. Someone else want to give the sermon? I'm afraid of what I'm going to say. I'm surprised several of you didn't jump up, all right? Okay, right now the ushers are giving you a handout, and it's for our service today. Um, just take one. We're going to be referring to it in a few moments, and um, they'll be getting it out as we get started here. All right? Very good. As you know, this, we are in our fourth week of our Ever Wonder About Heaven series, and, um, you know, um, we're using the materials from Randy Alcorn's books uh, as kind of our guideline for... Um, for our study, and um, we've talked about how having heaven, a perspective of heaven is a compass for us, how it guides us, and we also have been talking as well, last week we talked about how um, having a full understanding of heaven really gives us a bookend, um, it helps us to understand from beginning of Genesis all the way through the end of Revelation. And so we're going to kind of fill in a little bit of this today, a little bit more fuller here and all. So let me just, um, let me just ask you a couple of things. First of all, you know, have you ever, um, some, we used to do this thing at World Team, you know, it's called kind of, like, and I don't remember exactly what we called it, but it was called like Z planning or Z thinking. And, and perhaps you've also heard of Zig Ziglar has said, you know, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every single time. And then also you've, Stephen Covey said that, you know, you begin with the end in mind. And so, for instance, like with that Z thinking, you know, it's kind of thing like if you, if you know where you want to go. In other words, if you know your end is Z, 
and you are at A, you got to figure out how to get there. If you know that, like, if you're a farmer, you know you want a crop, like at home, I can't speak to, to what Doug does here in Bucks County because I don't even know what y'all raise up here. At home, though, if you want cotton to be able to be harvested in October, you're going to be thinking about it in March. Because you're not going to wait to October and say, come on, little seeds. You, you know, you, gotta, you, gotta, you have to know where you're going so that you know where to start and you know how to get there. Well, I think that you have to visualize it. You have to know about it. You have to taste it. So let's go back to Dorothy and her little doggy, too. And so she knew what she wanted. She, she had wanted to go there. She had that image. She had experienced it. And that experience had compelled her to keep looking for a way home. Right? Or something more, something more native. Rocky. You know, his vision for a fighting Apollo Creed drove him to race up the steps at the art museum to eat raw eggs and to beat up dead carcasses in the slaughterhouse. It's something we all want to do. But he had a vision for something that he wanted that compelled him in this life. It gave him a pattern. It gave him a, a, um, things to do. It gave him shape. It, gave, it, it, it directed his thoughts. It directed his actions completely. And now, now... Thousands of tourists do what Rocky does because of that. So just think, if you had a vision in this life, thousands of people might do it too. I don't know. Never mind. But Paul, Paul had a vision like Rocky did and like Dorothy did long before they ever had it. Open up your, Bi- no, yeah, open up your Bibles to Philippians 3, please. Open up your Bibles to Philippians 3. And here is where, where Paul is articulating his Z. Here Paul is articulating his target. He is telling you what compels him, what gives shape to his life, what gives direction to his life. He's telling you about what gives him structure to his activities, to his thinking. We're going to start, we're going to start in verse 7, all right? But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Do you, do you hear? He's beginning to say, this is important. This is my target. So these things can't be important. These things can't be in my radar. More than that, I count all things to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I am suffering the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Very clearly articulated. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or I have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which has been laid hold of me by Christ Jesus. You hear him articulating? He's saying, this is what I want. And because of that, I set other things aside and I'm focusing on that. And because I have that in front of me, I push on toward that. I push on toward that goal, toward that target. 
He says, brethren, I do not lay, regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I reach forward to that which lies ahead, and I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ Jesus our Lord. So there he's very clear. He's articulating very clearly this whole thing here about setting something aside and having a goal in front of him. And so he finishes up in verse 15. He says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if anything you have, and if, if anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. However, let us keep living by the same standard out to which we have attained. So he has, he has articulated very clearly this thing about having a target, having a goal, having something in front of you that motivates you, that gives structure to your life, that defines things that are important in life, and helps you to stay focused on those things. Later on, you know, we've already looked at this verse several times. He said in Colossians 3, set your th- heart on things above. So, Paul is talking about, he set himself up, he has a target, and he knows what he's shooting at. He, he knows where Kansas is at. He, you know, he's got all this figured out. He, in his mind, he has this place where he's going, these things he's striving for. And it gives him structure. Today, I'm suggesting that you and I have a, a deficient target. I'm suggesting that our vision of the future, our vision of heaven, is so blurry that we can't really see what it is. And because of that, we're not excited about it. Because of that, it's not attached to our heart. It doesn't compel us. It's not something we talk about. It's not something we plan for. It's not something that gives us shape or form or function to this life. Because it's just too blurry. We don't know what's out there. We don't know what our target is. We don't know really what is in the future for us. Because what's happened is we've allowed, you know, the world, we've allowed uh, uh, Farside and all those cartoons we showed early on in our, in our study, we've allowed all those things to sh- give shape and form and function to our thoughts and feelings about heaven. Because we think about it, it's all halos and harps. And I wish I'd brought a book. And it's not like that at all. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to study that you see here. We're going to take, and, and what we have is that the Bible gives us a peephole into the future. Now, if you've ever looked out the front, you know, if you ever looked at your, your front door, you're going to see that um, you don't see everything, but you see this, right? You don't see the whole picture. You just see what's right in front of you. And even at that, it's distorted. It's not the real shape. She's in the kitchen. I know who you're looking for. We're, we're looking for a child. They're in the kitchen. You can't see them. All right, and so you only see this little bit, and then it's distorted. It's out of shape. It's not, what, it's not the whole thing. It's not the real thing. It's just this image of what's outside the door. And, and the Bible does that for us. It gives us that target. It gives us that something we want. Now, you remember last week we talked about Eden, we talked about the garden, and that the wholeness and the harmony that, of mankind, and how all creation, you know, that it was, it, was, it was put together. It was in the right place. It was, in, it was perfect. He was whole, just like that. But in sin and in rebellion, 
He damaged that. And so all of mankind has this sense about us that we are damaged. All of mankind knows that there's a hole. And so they spend their life trying to figure out, how do I fix this? How do I find something to fill that hole with? And immediately Adam and Eve sensed it. Immediately Adam and Eve, they, they realized that something was wrong. And so what did they do? They covered themselves with leaves. A very inefficient and uncomfortable covering, to say the least. It didn't work. And so all of mankind has done the same thing. All of mankind has continued to try and fix this problem in ways that don't work. All of mankind has tried to say, then I need some of this, I need some of that, and that didn't work, so I keep trying. And they keep filtering through all these things that the world has to offer and finding that they are lacking. They're not quite the right thing. They don't fit the whole. They don't fit my problem. They're just not quite right. And so they go to the next thing. But for us as Christians, we know that Eden is not something we can go back to. It's not something we can go back and fix. We found that in this life, here and now, Christ has, put, has come and indwelled us and has begun to give us the possibility of experiencing peace when we are tapped into him. He's given us all the possibility to begin to, to experience that ultimate fix in a shadow of what's to come. And even still, in our moments of greatest intimacy, we know it's not enough. In our greatest moments of like knowing him and following him and being in sync with him, we know that it's still not what it's going to be. But we still don't have a sense of what it's going to be that is so strong that it gives us direction. To become truly excited about what's next for us and to, and to know where we're headed, to know what this is and to have our target that we really are going towards, to have that in front of us today, we have the handout. And so it, this is from Randy Alcorn's work. You, 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 if you've read the bigger book, you're going to find it in there and stuff. And so if you'll pull that out, we're going to walk our way through this today. And we're going to give ourselves a sense of everything that he's teaching and everything that he's pulled together in his study about what was what is and what's to come, all right? And so very, for, very, for instance, the very first thing you'll see here, that he, spe- he, he highlights what is the past. In other words, when he's highlighting the past, he's speaking about Genesis 1 and 2. When he's talking about the past, he's saying, this is what God created. This is how it was before sin, which is Genesis 3. And then he says, the present is Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. The bulk of the Bible. And then he says the future is Revelation 21 and 22. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go down through the past here, and then we're going to look at the present, and then we're going to look at the future. So for instance, in Genesis 1 and 2, we find that there was mankind in his original form. You know, there was an original earth. But you'll see over here as you move toward the present, what you'll see is that mankind in Genesis 3 fell. He rebelled. He had sin. And in that, he was broken. And now what has happened in the present, in this Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, some have had faith, some have believed, and some are transformed by the power of Christ inside of them, but not everyone. And even at that, it's not complete. Because we know that later on in Revelation 21 and 22, that mankind, that we will be resurrected. 
And we know that we've already studied that that body that we've read, that mankind, it will be complete and perfect and whole, and it'll even be more than we can imagine. Moving down, you know, the next thing he talks about is creation, earth. In its original form, it didn't need to be tended. It didn't need to have someone who take care of it. It didn't have weeds to pull. It didn't have thorns and thistles. But in the fall, in a mankind's rebellion, earth also was broken. And so now all we see is glimmers, as a little bit of what it was. It's like the peephole. It's a little bit of what it was. But also what we read in Revelation 8, where it says that all of creation yearns to be restored. Well, when he speaks of a new heaven and a new earth, he's speaking that what I once had in its perfection, we will bring back. And matter of fact, I'm going to restore it and it will be better. It'll be more. And so that's where he's speaking about creation. He goes on, he says, God delegates earth's reign to innocent mankind. So Adam and Eve were given a job to do. They were innocent. They were, they were, they were without sin. But when in Genesis 3, they stepped into sin. And then all of a sudden, they had this disputed reign with God. In other words, they were in conflict with who's in charge here, me or you? And Satan entered the picture, and he began to tempt, to coerce to woo man into more rebellion. But as we go further, you'll see that God delegates earth's reign to a righteous mankind. He'll delegate earth's reign to men and women who have come, have accepted him in this life. And through their faithfulness in this life and through their responsibility in this life and the next life will be given more responsibility. That's one of the themes that we see in Scripture that we don't really pick up on that we talk about when we get to the next life, that how we are responsible in this life, what we do with it in this life, we will get more in the next life. And it's not like it's going to wear us out. It's not like it's going to, but I don't, you know, it's not like more bricks, less straw. It's like it would be joy to serve him in the next life. And it would be never ending as in the sense of like our energy and our, and our desire to serve him. And so that's what the next life will be like. That's what the future will be like. So here, you moving on down here, mankind is given dominion with intended stewardship of earth. And so, he's, you know, that's, we see that in Revelation, Genesis. It says, here this is. This is for you to con- have dominion, exert dominion over. But what happened in the rebellion is that that dominion was thwarted. It, it, was, it was frustrated, twisted. In other words, and so all that he was supposed to have, that dominion, that exercise, that influence over, it all got bent out of shape. And now what was intended for man's pleasure, what was intended for God's glory, is now intended for man's glory. And given and left to ourselves, we will always consume everything for ourselves with very little thought for others. With very little thought for others. But what will happen is God, mankind's dominion will be fulfilled and will redeem stewardship of earth under the king of kings and culture will be redeemed. And so everything that was rebroken about how we were and how we set up things in Genesis 3, how we broke it in Genesis 3 through 21, in the new place, in the future, it will be set back into place. That conflict, that exercise, that, that striving won't happen any longer. It won't be there going on in Genesis 1 and 2. God is in heaven. He visits earth. You know that, you know, and you know, some of our old hymns talk about walking in the garden and I, and I hear him and, and, and that's what we read. You know, we read in Genesis 3, he walks and he calls their names and they hear him and they hide. Well, right there, we just stepped over from Genesis 1 and 2 into Genesis 3 because all of a sudden 
We are, we are cut off from him. God is apart, and, and, we, are, and we, have, we are dwelling with other people here. And those who by faith have a relationship with God, they have a relationship with him, but nothing like it was in Genesis 1 and 2, and nothing that would be like Genesis, Revelation 21 and 22. There is nothing about face-to-face. There's nothing about the kind of intimacy I can have by sitting down over here with anyone and just sitting down and saying, how are you? But in the next life, that face-to-face relationship will again be rekindled. In the next life, he talks about wiping away tears. In the next life, that's what that relationship with he, him will be like between he and I, between you and him. In the beginning, there was no curse. Everything was perfect. But in that, you know, we read it last week. In Genesis 3, though, it says, cursed are you. And he goes through, cursed are you, Satan, the snake. Cursed are you, woman. Cursed are you, man. The earth is cursed. All that was created now was broken. It was cursed. It was not like it was supposed to be. It had that hole. It had that brokenness in it. And then all of creation ever since then, in, in, in Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, it was broken. That sin continued to exercise it. And, so, and this sounds so trite, but it is so true and it is so profound. And in this particular instance right here, this is where so many of our questions about why things are the way they are exist. And so it's like, so how could God... Let there be a typhoon so large that it would do what it did to the Philippines. Well, quite honestly, the simple answer is Genesis 3. Is because there is a curse on creation. And at once it was in harmony with itself. At once there was not going to be anything like this. At once it did not consume itself or devour itself or abuse or damage or kill. And yet now because of the curse... Hurricanes happen. It's cold outside. Outside is today is a result of the curse. Absolutely. Earthquakes, volcanoes. Broken relationships. How can a father treat a child that way? How can a husband treat a wife that way? How can children treat siblings that way? How can that be? It's right there. It's the curse. But in Revelation, that curse would be lifted. And typhoons would probably only happen out in the deepest, darkest waters where they're just an amazing instance of God's power, but not harmless or anything else. Our relationships will no longer be broken and they'll be in harmony. All, everything will be set back into order even better than it was. In Genesis 1 and 2, it speaks about that Adam and Eve, they were without in the way of clothing, and they knew no shame. They knew nothing. There was nothing about it that was, that was like, hey, you know, you step back in the room there and put something on. But immediately, what, what is the first thing that we read in Genesis? They were ashamed. The first thing, they were ashamed. And and shame is a driving factor in what shapes what we say and do in our life now. Feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, feeling embarrassed. 
And so, especially among, especially among our students, not wanting to feel ashamed or embarrassed in front of peers. And it, it is most profoundly worked out among them. But among us adults, we just conceal it better. We navigate it better. It doesn't look as, as bad on us, but we still are doing it. But shame, just consider how much shame drives us in this life. But in the next life, there'll be no more shame. There'll be no potential for shame. The tree of Eden in life, mankind can eat. You know, he, there, was, there was just, it was there. But when you move over, tree of life, and we're cut off. But in the, in the next life, in the future, in Jerusalem, we'll, in the new Jerusalem, the new earth, it will be there again. And you have to think, you remember, keep in mind that this again speaks to the fact that like in the new earth, it is like this earth, only grander, more glorious. It's not clouds. It is a new earth, only an earth that is magnified in its glory and its beauty. The river of life in Eden. And then, you know, again, this is speaking to the creation. And then in the present, rivers and nature and just a glimmer of the past and the future. But in the future, it will be a glorious place. And again, it just speaks to the, the fact that creation now is a glimmer, is just a little bit of what it was and what it will be. Going further, in Genesis 1 and 2, we don't see any any issue of death. But immediately, in Genesis 3, death begins to pervade and begins to come into creation. It begins to invade it. And and then immediately, can you think about this? When you think about that men sailed around the world in wooden ships and risked their life to to find the fountain of youth. That rich men, very rich men, spend millions and millions of dollars to make their life last longer. That science has tried to do everything it can to figure out, can we freeze us and bring us back? Think about how this one area right here has driven mankind ever since Genesis 3. The fear of death and and the drive to extend this life. Death permeates all. Everything dies. But we know that in the future, there'll be no more death. Mankind created from the earth. We read that in Genesis. From the dust, he took, he took the dust and he formed man. And then from man, he took the rib and he formed woman. But then moving forward, mankind dies, returns to earth and new life to some. He's speaking about spiritual. But in the, new, in the, in the future, mankind will be resurrected from earth to live on a new earth and it would be perfect again. It will be perfect again. And this life here, in the first one, the, past, the first Adam reigned. So he was the father of all mankind in the physical realm. But when he fell, mankind also was corrupted and fell. And yet in us, there are glimpses of good, glimpses of God. And then finally, the last Adam, Jesus comes. And so he is the first of spiritual line. Adam was the first of the physical line. Jesus is the first of the spiritual line. And then lastly, it says, the last Adam reigns as a God-man with mankind as co-heirs and delegated kings. And so later on in our next life, Christ will rule. The last Adam, he'll rule. He'll reign. But then we will be co-heirs along with him. We'll be delegated responsibility. We'll be reigning with him. And the first... 
in the first time in Genesis there, Satan and serpent and Satan on earth. And so the influence of evil is present. And in Genesis 3 through Revelation 20, Satan is judged, but he is still present on earth. Where did that judgment happen? Immediately. In Genesis 3, we're told this is what's going to happen to you. This is, your judgment exists now, but you're loose right now on earth to have influence. And even there, that influence, we, read, we can understand this from Job, even there, that influence is limited. But in the future, he'll be removed from earth, he'll be thrown in eternal fire, and his influence will no longer exist at all. Genesis 1 there, creation and mankind perfect. We've already touched on that and just in the side notes and stuff, but creation and mankind is perfect and it's tainted by sin, but it'll be restored to perfection even more than we saw in what we were described in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, mankind names and tends and rules the animals, but then after that, the animals of mankind, uh, they hurt each other, they, they exercise dominion over each other in violent ways and they suffer, but later on, here, right here in Newtown, where the uh, famous, author, with famous painter Hicks painted the, you know, the peaceable kingdom, where mankind and animal kind will, rule, will live in harmony. Touched on this also. The ground was fertile. It had vegetation was lush. It gave up its, pr- its fruit easily, willingly, um, uh, um, abundantly, but not in this life. But then in the next life, again, it will return to fertile and abundance. Same thing with food and water. But in this life, how many people die of, 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 of lack of food, lack of water, or lack of clean water? But then again, in the next life, won't happen. In Genesis, restfulness, the satisfaction in labor, it didn't drain the body. It was not something that was, it was not taxing on us. But in this life, you read, we read it last week that he, he speaks of that, in, that but from now on, from now on, it'll be by the sweat of your brow. And it won't necessarily be something you enjoy, and you'll always have to do it. But later on, in the future, he speaks about that our labor, that, that we will have restfulness, a joy in labor. Genesis 1, paradise, it's perfect. It's everything you could dream of. It was lost. Milton told us that. The Bible tells us that. And that we see glimmers of it and foretaste of it in Scripture, in creation. But then it'd be regained and magnified in the future. Mankind in an ideal place, that's what we was just even in the, in the context of paradise. But then in Genesis 3 through 20, mankind is thrown out of that ideal place and he wanders. But in the, new fu- in the future, in Revelation, mankind will be restored to that perfect place, much improved, that new heaven, that new earth, that place of our eternal rest, not a, not a temporary heaven, but that eternal rest, we're placed back into that perfect place. Mankind was, not, was able to sin or not sin. Now, this one's a nice controversial topic that we could take up a whole Sunday or more. Mankind was able to sin or not sin. So in the garden, he was told, you can do anything you want but this one thing. Mankind was given free will. He could choose to sin or he could choose not to. He could choose to stay away from that tree or he could choose to go and eat from it. He was given free will. Now, if mankind was given free will in that life, in that part of God's dispensation, why would he not be given free will in this life 
and this dispensation. Well, mankind now is enslaved to sin and empowered not to sin. In this, in this life, mankind, there's, there's no escaping that sin now. When Adam, our first father, stepped into sin, he made it so that we cannot escape from sin. We are now a slave to sin. And in this life, we will always have the effects of that sin on us. No matter how godly we become, no matter how long we've been a Christian, but that sin will still have its chains to us to some degree. Its impact will still be felt. But in the next life, mankind will be unable to sin and permanently empowered to escape that sin. One marriage, Adam and Eve, and in the next, in the next in this present age, many marriages, but they're all supposed to reflect Christ and the church. And the next one you speak of, that speaks of Christ and coming as a, bride, as a groom looking for his bride, and he calls the church his bride. And, the, and, and in the context of that, we see that, that imagery of the marriage feast in the new heaven and the new earth. All that is carried out there as well. Beginning of human culture, so mankind is beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, but it's corrupted by sin. And so when we come into Genesis 3 through 20, all of a sudden, there again, people would say, well, how, do, how, does, how does Bosnia happen? How does Hitler happen? How does Darfur happen? Why, why would, how can mankind do all those things? It's because of this. It's because of Genesis 3. Because in our cultures, we, we want to dominate one another. There's that desire in us, and it, and it exerts itself through economic and violent means. But in the next life, it will be purified. And that culture will be one that he sets up. And that culture will be one that Christ reigns over. And it will be perfect, an expression of him. And we will reflect that. We will be like him. And so the culture and everything about relating to each other and everything about the kingdom, the, the, the government, and how we interact with each other, will be a reflection of him and his reign over us. And the first, in the beginning, mankind learned was, was created in purity. But in this life, mankind learns and he creates an impurity. In this life, we still seek to exercise dominion. We still seek to take that which was beautiful and corrupt it. We still seek to express our sin now on the canvas, on film, in our music, in any way we can. What we express is our rebellion. And so when you think about this, think about one of the things we read about the most in the Old Testament is idols. The creativity of mankind being expressed in images that expressed his rebellion against God. Now granted, there are, there are times when our art still is beautiful, many times. But there's always more creativity that expresses our rebellion and our sin. Man's plan for mankind and earth revealed, God explains. He tells us what he wants from us. He tells us this is how it's going to be. This is what it can look like. But God's plan is, is, is there disrupted by sin and it's delayed. And then later on, God's plan for mankind and earth is realized. What he started in Genesis will be finished in Revelation. And so, all of that, all of that is intended. That long list, I think there's maybe 25 to 30 items on it. All of that is intended 
That today is like knowledge. That's all it is, is head knowledge. Today is just stuff that we're not wrapped our heads around. I would venture to say that today it's all stuff that we've never really thought about before very much. We've had glimmers of it. We've read about it. Someone's talked about it. Someone's preached about it. Someone's mentioned it in a lesson. But it's nothing that we've really ever had said, said, this is something that's important to me and I need to understand it. It's never begun to shape our thinking. It's never begun to shape, to, to engage our hearts in such a way that our hearts begin to embrace it. But that changes as we meditate upon it, as we think about it, as we consider the truth of it, and our heart does begin to attach to it. Then we begin to be like Paul was, where he says, this, these things above that I'm thinking about, all of that up there begins to shape what I'm doing here. And so we begin to long for it earnestly and intently like Paul did. And so now we have a, 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 you know, even if it is just the people of the door, we have the idea in mind. We have what the Z is like. We have the target. And now as we begin to think about these things and we consider like the way that we are broken in this life, we begin to consider the way that this world is broken in this life and the way that God is going to take it and restore it and is going to glorify it later on. When we begin to think about all those things like that, we begin to have, to, we can begin to be excited about it in a real way. And we can begin to long for it. We can begin to take that good old Baptist hymn we sang today, which is, wow, that was a flash from the past. You know, that says that we're talking about when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout for victory. Victory over what? Victory over Genesis 3 through 20. Over everything that we've ever known in this life, it will all be a thing of the past because we'll be in the next. And then eventually in eternity, we'll be in Revelation 21 through 22. We'll get to go, we'll we'll go to the people and we'll peer into the next life as often as possible when all of this begins to embrace our heart. And, and that's when we'll be like this slide here. That's when we'll be like children on Christmas morning who can't sleep the night before because of the excitement about what tomorrow brings. D.L. Moody, you know, we quoted this last week in our bulletin, says, you know, folks will say very soon that I'll be dead. But he says, oh, that's not true. He says, I'll be living like never before because he knows what he's stepping into. He has that target, that Z. He knows what Kansas looks like. And it's Christ and all of his glory in heaven. So we go back and we just say, like we said last week, that when we begin to understand what waits on us, it helps us to loosen our grip on this life. It helps us to loosen what we think is important in this life. And so like Paul said a moment ago, he says, all that I count as loss for what's to come. 